This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today I thought we'd talk about a few of the creative ways that governments attempt to reduce poverty. In your beloved city of Chicago, Mayor Lightfoot has proposed to pay 5,000 low-income families $500 a month for a year in order to provide them with some economic stability. Now, we can get into the history of these universal basic income programs later, but can you give us the arguments why, why people keep coming back to them? Why, is there something to them? To say that there's something to them, I think, is an exaggeration, but there is a kind of model about the way in which the world works, um, which explains why it is that these things are always done. And there are two features about it. One is it turns out that all the administrative difficulties associated with these programs are carefully put to one side. There is going to be $500 for each of these 5,000 families. We will know who these families are, and the money will be effortlessly transferred. In practice, of course, that is not true. There are probably at some level maybe 5,000 families, maybe 50,000 families that meet the eligibility requirement. Somebody's going to have to figure out which persons are going to get it and why. That's going to dissipate, of course, a huge amount of resources so that whatever the estimate is for the amount of money that's going to be transferred, it has to be bumped up pretty substantially to take into account the amount that's going to be uh, dissipated with respect to the administrative stuff. The second assumption is that there's no response on the part of anybody to anything once you do that. So the way in which the standard model works is you figure out what the current distribution of jobs and work and labor is. And then what you say is we're going to give $500 per month to these families. Nothing will change. Whatever they did before, they will continue to do. What other people did with respect to them will happen in exactly the same way. Uh, So that what you do is you come up with a model which says, in effect, 100% of every dollar that you put into this program is going to go to its intended purposes, and there are going to be no collateral adverse events that will essentially undermine the program in question. These are two very heroic assumptions. I've mentioned the first one already. There is no way that you could possibly keep the administrative costs down to the level that you think that they should be, uh, so forget about that. But there's also the incentive effect. If somebody's going to get this kind of money, the question is, will they or will they not continue to work in the way in which they've done before? And who knows? Uh, Some people will. Many people probably will not. What will they do with the money? Some people will save it so it won't stimulate the economy. Others will use it to pay past debt. Others will put it aside for their current savings program. We had a program of this sort, which was put forward by the Bush administration, if you remember, uh, proposed back around 2008 when Barack Obama was gearing up in his presidential campaign, and everybody thought they knew exactly what would happen with the money, and everybody turned out to be wrong. You make extraordinary expenditures. People do not treat it as though it's $500 that they've acquired in their particular way. So what's the likely consequence of this? Uh, In terms of the people who get the windfall, they will certainly regard themselves as better off, but it certainly will not be in an amount of the money that they receive. There's going to be something that's going to create some sort of slippage. They will give up some other kind of collateral benefits in order to get these. In order to deal with the system at large, you're going to have to figure out where it is you raise these monies. Chicago is in a very desperate position with respect to its own financial condition. It's probably a billion dollars or more short on its budget, and that's before all the new uh, surprises that are likely to come forward in September and October. Their view is that they can shift it back to the federal government. The question then is, why 
why should the federal government do it for 500 families in Chicago and not do it in Detroit or Pittsburgh or in Alameda County? We don't know the answer to that question. So there's going to be another level of push and shove trying to figure out whether these federal funds can be diverted in this particular fashion. We really do not know what's going to happen. What will take place is that uh, the program will be introduced. There will be no appreciable effect one way or another, certainly nothing positive. People will say, well, we know why this particular program lasted It's because, or failed. It's because there's only $500 instead of $5,000. It was only for 5,000 families, not for 50,000 families. So what we have to do is to increase the amount on both of these dimensions, more people getting more money, and then we can see what it happens. That, of course, means exactly the opposite in practice. It means that the administrative expenses will become even more difficult to cabin in and that the politics to get the money will become greater. And in effect, that the dislocations on incentive effects will be larger as well. Uh, so that what you do is you could expand the program, uh, but you only amplify its negative consequences. So a quick follow-up, Richard, because, uh, I mean, how much of this do you think is performative versus an earnest effort to help low-income families? And I mention this because this proposal in Chicago, it's, it's similar to other ones that we've seen pop up in San Francisco and Oakland and some in New York City, although those come with a research component. They're always being studied. So uh, how much do you think uh, we're, we're going to see that here? What, this kind of program? I, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, everybody wants to attach some kind of bells and whistles to these programs. They want to make the grants conditional instead of making them absolute. They want to study what the impacts and the effects are going to be. Uh, but in the end, you can say, before you look at these particular programs, is there is no way that you could ever have a program that's going to be a naked transfer program that does not have a combination of adverse incentive effects and administrative drag. Uh, that we know going in. So what should they do, I think, is the better question. Well, Chicago is the home of padded public services on the one hand and census regulation, particularly at the bottom end of the market on the other. So this gets back to a very traditional battle. And that traditional battle, quite simply, is uh, do we help the poor by a system of transfer payments, subsidies, prohibitions and regulations? Or do we try to deregulate and let wages go up naturally as it turns out that it's more attractive to hire people if they come with less baggage by way of social security tax, income tax, special benefits, and so forth? I've always favored that solution. That's what they should try in Chicago. But the difficulty of deregulation is the politicians cannot keep their hands on the tiller. And what happens with these programs is Ms. Lightfoot and her various minions are very anxious to make sure not that there's going to be an improvement in Chicago in the abstract but only an improvement in Chicago that goes through them. Let's look over to President Biden's American Families Plan, because it takes another approach, which is to vastly expand the child tax credit and make it refundable for many, many more people. This has already been extended through the CARES Act. Uh, Today, the Wall Street Journal editorial board has a good piece pointing out that the child tax credit is no longer a tax credit. It's a federal entitlement and a large one. The, the, the numbers being talked about right now and the budget being considered is $500 billion over five years, at which point it would expire, although many people don't think that anyone would let it expire. And it isn't targeted well either, Richard. I mean, a couple earning $100,000 with three kids under the age of seven would qualify for over $10,000 in payments. So do you see any similarities between these other efforts at maybe a, a universal basic income and this way of expanding the child tax credit? And do you think it's good policy? 
Well, I think all of these things are in general very bad policy, but let me put it to this way. There's an inherent difference on these things. Uh, the mayor of Chicago comes hat in hand, and she does not have the Treasury of the United States behind her. So she's going to have to put something in a kind of an ad hoc basis in an effort to make it go. If your name is Joe Biden and you think you have the full faith and credit of the United States government behind you, uh, simply borrowing money and not formally raising the tax rates is what you're going to do. Uh, but it's always going to be the same problem. They're going to be adverse incentive effects. They're going to be heavy costs of administration. And of course, there's going to be an implicit increase in the burdens upon those more productive members of Chicago or uh, other society, so that you're going to find the fact that the heavier taxes, uh, the rate of inflation, and all the rest of that stuff is going to do two things simultaneously. It's going to reduce the size of the pie and then increase the uh, size of a particular slice, meaning that the productive individuals in society get a smaller share of a smaller pie, which in the end means that you're going to shrink the size of the pie even further. Uh, Milton Friedman used to like these kinds of universal income taxes and so forth in principle because what he thought it was a way if you gave people money, they could exercise their discretion and not depend upon uh, the federal or the state governments for specific grants for particular purposes, education, clean teeth, or whatever it turns out to be. One of the things that we've discovered, and I don't think Milton fully appreciated this, every time you propose a new entitlement, nobody wants to get rid of any existing entitlement. So that what you will have are both the generalized entitlements with free cash on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you'll have all the specific targeted programs taking place simultaneously. What is this going to do? Um, it's clearly going to, at the very least, influence the margin of people who are willing to go back to work and people who are not. This is not a joke. Um, at present, we know that people with skilled jobs are in very, very high demand. There's not enough to fill them. We know that the firms are working very hard to do this by offering all sorts of training programs, signing bonuses and the like. It still hasn't been able to make a dent. So every time you decide that you're going to put an entitlement program in, it means that the paying sector and the productive sector is going to have to compete with larger and larger subsidies, and it too will fall inside. Uh, so I regard the Obama programs as a kind of a, a desperate descent uh, in economic disarray. Uh, I like that phrase. Uh, you start the way you think you are, and everything you do will start to shift it downward. And one of the things that takes place is that the question you now have to ask as to whether or not the very enviable improvements in productive and innovative capacities in the United States are sufficiently strong that they can essentially withstand the enormous pressure that's coming from redistribution down programs, uh, which are put into place as well. My own view about this is that you cannot really make that go. Um, I just don't think it's going to happen. And so uh, the Biden program hangs by a thread, I guess, at this particular point in time. So I don't think in its current form it's going to go through. If it's half as large, it's probably less than half as bad. Uh, but I can't see any positive that's coming out of this. And one of the things that's so frightening about the Biden administration is there is no deregulatory initiative that goes along with this uh, which will help improvement inside the labor market. So they are pushing the wrong buttons for the wrong reasons, and everybody is going to have to pay the price. So we've been talking about uh, President Biden's push for expanding the child tax credit, but I don't want to let the GOP off the hook because they've been pushing for the expansions as well. Let's recall that the TCJA uh, increased the CTC from uh, $1,000 to $2,000, and it's part of the reason why our corporate tax rate isn't 20%. It had to go up a little bit more than that. 
Uh, Senator Romney, uh, once upon a time, uh, introduced the Family Security Act, called for monthly cash payments of $300 a month or so for each child. So, uh, Richard, is there anyone left who can rein in this kind of expansion, or are we doomed to just see federal entitlements swallow everything? Well, America, I I think it's clear the United States is a country in decline. Um, and I think essentially it's in decline for the same reasons that all countries go in decline. It gets a degree of success by having a certain degree of toughness, both internally and externally. And then what happens is it thinks that it's invulnerable precisely because it has gained such, such success. The maxim that I always use is that the only program that will keep you where you got when you were rigorous and tough is a program that is every bit as rigorous and every bit as tough. The moment you start to slack off, things will start to come down. And so as you see in the United States, in the foreign arena, the United States is basically turned tail and is trying to find all sorts of excuses not to stand up in places like Afghanistan. And, you know, they start saying, well, we don't want to be engaged in a perpetual war. Well, that's what they got. They got themselves more discord and more potential conflict than they had before. On the domestic side, they said, well, uh, we used to be very tough when trying to help people out of failures and they perform, but now we're rich enough so that we can afford to change course. You can't afford to change course because the moment you start to do it, it will start to accelerate. And I can't think of a single direction in which the Biden administration has tried to push uh, this thing to the better. As you mentioned, the Republicans are very similar. It's very difficult to find today somebody who's a classical liberal Republican who believes in a relatively strong defense system, a relatively free market system, and relatively modest supports on the redistribution front. Uh, The Republicans compete with the Democrats by saying, well, they'll only do half as much as you want. And they call that a kind of prudence. And that's what you're seeing here. Uh, But what it takes is a much steeper cut. I mean, if you start thinking about it, uh, we now have program after program that gives support both on a particularized basis for this, that, and the other purpose and on a generalized basis. And you ask yourself, what has happened to poverty rates in function of all these things? And the answer is they have not gone down. It's by the time you take all the incentives into effect, other things start to break as well. If you recall, it's now over 40 years since Charles Murray published his book, Losing Ground. Remember that book? And, you know, what did it document? It documented in the period in the immediate post-war years, roughly speaking, 1945 to 1970. What you did is you increased mightily the system of transfer payments and the level of poverty increased. Whereas when you were doing less of that stuff, it turned out people would actually get real jobs, get real income. And so instead of having a transfer payment, well, you got taxation revenues, small but real, uh, from the people who would otherwise be receiving the subsidy. We have completely given up collectively on the public model. And the only thing that the Republicans are capable of doing is to say, oh, Democrats, you want to do too much of this bad stuff. But, oh, Democrats, uh, let's just compromise on a number. So if the correct position, as was taken by the New York Times in October of 1987, is to have a zero minimum wage on the grounds that markets will work far better if there isn't that price um, barrier to these things, what we do today is we say, well, I would like to take it up to $18 an hour, so let's settle on 14 And you can't run a society where what happens is you don't have any principled opposition to these kinds of behaviors. You only have arguments over the amount. Or what arguments over the amount do in the end is it slow down the rate of the decline some. But then when you get a Democratic 
a Republican president like Obama, who's so erratic on transfer, not Obama, like Trump, who's so erratic on transfer payments in any event, um, it's just not at all clear that the Republicans are going to give you a restorative or a corrective kind of position. Uh, as I think it was sometimes said, all of this stuff simply changes the second derivative. Things are going down, but in a Republican administration, they go down a little more slowly than they do in a Democratic administration. Well, Biden is a big surprise. Um, it looks like it's Bernie Sanders calling the shots, even though he may have nothing to do with this. And that means that under these circumstances, the rate of decline is going to be even faster. There's no really cheery outcome under this situation. It is only when we start to realize that you have to create productivity um, in order to engage in forms of redistribution. And the moment you do engage in productive activity, the number of needs for redistribution goes down, and those can be handled by voluntary means. But at this particular point, uh, the $3.3 trillion um, infrastructure bill, so-called, is a down payment on future social disaster. I, I refuse to let us end on a, a downbeat. I, All right, I, well, if, we're, if we're, if we're going to reverse our decline, Richard, I mean, we have to look at our budget. We're spending so much money. How much of it is going to come through cutting budget? How much of it can we actually find new tax revenue? Where, how do we reverse this, this trend? Well, if you do it through getting new tax revenue, it's only going to compound the problem because it means that all the excess burdens, the deadweight losses associated with tax will increase. The only way in which we can do this is to have a fundamental change in basic philosophy and realize that it's the deregulatory stuff without a safety net, so-called, is going to be the only way in which we could get ourselves out of this mess. What happens is you think that with the number of people who were in on the safety net 20 years ago, it's say half of what we have now, nobody else thought. Now, in effect, that everybody's in it, we assume if you went back to the previous status quo ante, uh, the whole world's going to fall apart. It won't fall apart. I'll just mention one little anecdote. There was a very famous uh, New Zealander named uh, Sir Roger Douglas, who was put in charge of the New Zealand uh, miracle when he became, I think it was prime minister or secretary of the treasury or both in New Zealand in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And so somebody said to Roger, how did you do this? And he said, well, the first thing you do is you cut all tariffs and then you cut all export subsidies because just having the pressure of international markets on you, particularly in a small government uh, and in a small country, will really make a difference. And then you start going after programs. And the secret, he says, is when you finish number one on day 10, you start number two on day 11. He says the moment you indicate that there's going to be some pause in this effort to end the endless cycle of taxation and subsidization, all the people will start to regroup. What you have to do is to make it very clear to each and every one of these groups. They try to get together. It's not going to help them. It's every person for themselves, and then people will start to improve. Let me just give you one example of what kind of improvement you're talking about. New Zealand used to have an incredible system of agricultural subsidies, and what happened is everybody just made crops uh, that were tied to the subsidy. You get rid of the subsidies, it's a completely different incentive structure now. Now you're looking to find a way to make products that nobody else makes to find a gap in the existing array and to fill it. And so the net effect is, instead of having just eight products heavily subsidized, you get 2,000 properties, none of them subsidized, and all of them contributing to the overall prosperity of the economy. That's the kind of change that you can get. And they were able to do it in New Zealand, at least for a while. And even after they lost some of the momentum, they still were able to keep much of what had happened. I'm happy to say that I had a large part to do with that when I worked with this incredibly able man named Sir Roger. He wasn't a Sir Roger, who had been in the treasury with Sir Roger Douglas. And he helped 
put this together through the new business, New Zealand Business Roundtable. Uh, but you look at the Chamber of Commerce and all these business roundtables, they're quasi-socialists in the United States, or they're apologetic. So we have a very serious problem. Uh, look to the New Zealand example, and you may make some of this work, if in fact you simply think that we have to trim the sails on a boat which is already inherently unstable, it's going to sink even further. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.